Shout out to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We real estate disruptors. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's very special episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today, we have my good friends, Lizzie Hofer with Cross Country Mortgage, the number one Hispanic loan officer in the country, and Tina Tambor with the Cronford Report, the resource for housing data in Arizona. They're both in Phoenix, and today's special episode will be about what's going on in today's housing market, what they're seeing, and potentially where we're going. I'm very lucky to call my friends, so when I reached out to them (laughs) earlier this week, they said they were both happy to come. If this is your first time tuning in, I am Steve Trang, sales trainer, and every month we help hundreds of people buy more houses at deeper margins. If you want to join us on our training calls, DM me the word sales on Instagram, and I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires. The information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take consistent action, I promise you will become one. And the show is brought to you by our, our sister company, InvestorLift. Get over get access to over 2 million cash buyers across the country. Go to InvestorLift.com, put in disruptors to get 10% off. And if you get value today, please tag a friend below, share this episode, and that way we can all grow together. You guys ready? Ready. Yeah. All right. So we'll start with Tina. Uh, you're probably getting this question all the time is what the heck is going on in our housing market? (laughs) What the heck is going on? Well, a number of things are happening, and it's actually something that started last year and is has now been accelerated because of interest rates. So the minute interest rates started rising um, above 3.1%, which was the last week of December for Freddie Mac, uh, the acceleration of that cost buyers has pulled out the traditional home buyer more so than they already were pushed out after we dropped below the affordability measures, um, traditional affordability measures of Greater Phoenix in June of last year. So June of last year, we kind of said, this is going to get risky for investors because the minute you can't flip that home to somebody who can afford it, or you can't rent that home to somebody who can afford it, what the risk is to you is at some point we're going to see a diminished return, okay? So investors took over or started to take over a lot of the market share and regular owners, owner occupants were pushed out per the affidavit value that's recorded here in Arizona. Uh, Normal percentages were about 70 to 75%, 76 somewhere in there for owner occupant. By the end of last year, that number was 64% and by April it was 62%. And so that means that they have not been in the driver's seat really. Mm-hmm. And and the risk factor, again, who's been pushing prices up? Investors. And so investors are who have been taking on that risk. And the risk is not necessarily of loss for those who have like purchased, say, before six months ago. Um, it's it's really more of a less than desirable return. Yeah. So she's talking about home appreciation, so future mm-hmm. value. Yes. So future value basically based off of last year's purchases. So What we're seeing now is much of the supply increases that have happened, most of them are being spurred by investors and builders. So builders who did not have a need for the MLS literally three or four months ago are now finding that their demand has diminished to the point that they are now putting their new homes into the MLS. So that's part of it. Do you know how many of those uh, 14,000 are from the builders? I don't have the number exactly, but I know they went from about 11% of listings, which would be your luxury new homes mm-hmm. were always in there to about 13% of yep. the overall uh, market share of active listings. The other part is uh, about 10% iBuyer, which mean open door and offer pad. They have seen a massive acceleration yeah. in what they have active versus how many are actually under Well, they contract. said they wanted to dominate the market, and I think uh, yeah. <laughs> they've succeeded in dominating the, the listings. Yes, and then you have another aspect of it, which are the second homeowners, the um, LLCs, if we just look at LLCs, which by the way, are not necessarily institutions, because mm-hmm. I have an LLC, I'm sure many people do. Um, so just because it's an LLC doesn't mean that it's an institution, but we do see about um, another like 15% rentals. Yeah. Um, so what we're essentially Long story short, we're seeing a lot of investors dominating the supply. Mm-hmm. They are the ones that are feeling it the most. Yeah. Regular homeowners are the least affected. 
by this right now. It's uh, interesting you said, you know, like a lot of the funds or whatever, they're buying these houses. I had a chance to go to the IMN conference and mm-hmm. uh, uh, all these fun uh, CEOs right, are on stage and they're talking about what they're doing, what their, uh, their plans are for the future and the reason why they can pay these outrageous prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing that they said on stage that really, you know, shocked me was they made the bold claim that the American dream is over, right? The American dream of owning homes <laughs> is over. Like we're going to be like Europe, uh, you know, in five to 10 years. I thought that was a pretty bold statement. Uh, Lizzie, what are you seeing? Um, well, hi everyone. Super happy to be here. Um, you know, we are definitely seeing a market shift. Um, I do want to just say that shift is, it is a cyclical thing that happens all the time in every type of investment, stock market, real estate market, economies. And so it isn't something to be super fearful of. Um, I know that in my childhood, I had my parents talking about their fears of their parents' fears of the Great Depression. And what we are experiencing right now with everyone talking about housing like crashes and a real estate crisis is PTSD from the Great Recession. So like, I just want to start off and say, yes, like as somebody who works in real estate, I am definitely seeing a shift. We are down in mortgage applications. Interest rates have risen two and a half percent since the beginning of the year, which is, you know, that means like a, a buyer who's looking at, you know, getting the same monthly payment has lost about 25 percent of their purchasing power. Um, so we're seeing a, a significant impact in the number of applications and closings. But for me, as somebody who's worked in this industry for 20 years, I've seen this happen multiple times in my career. And there's nothing that leads me to believe that we are on the precipice of a housing crash. And I just want to state like, cause you know, one of the comments that I made earlier was like, Hey, this is what she's talking about is that there's a lot of information being thrown out there about values and a home value is very different than a market price. And a market price is set by real estate agents that have opinions anywhere between five and 20% different depending on the agent that you talk to and the comparables that they are researching and what they believe they're going to price that home for and what a consumer is willing to pay to get that home today. So a year ago, people were willing to pay over 100% of a listing price to buy a home. Today, like I'm seeing more people buy like 90%, 97%. A lot of times they're paying list price. Like I'm not seeing these dramatic price reductions. And I still, there's still a substantial amount of people due to the increases in wages and the strong employment that can still afford homes. Like one other mm-hmm. clarification I'd really like to make is that the affordable housing issue that people are talking about isn't necessarily like that there aren't enough people that can afford the American dream. It's that there isn't enough lower priced houses for people that make under the median income. So we do have a problem in like, is there affordable houses, mm-hmm. right? But can people still buy houses? Absolutely. And they're still buying them at 6% interest rates. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's interesting is the, you're talking about the median price point, right? So like median below first time home buyers, that should be fine. But right now, if you've been looking at houses for the last three, four or five months, and you've been waiting for all these listings to finally be available when you're competing against these cash buyers and they're available, but your interest rate is significantly higher. Yep. Like what's happening to those buyers? So if I could make comment on that, it's not that the, the only people really I'm going to say is freaking out about this is the industry. Yes. Most people, if you're a buyer and you are needing to buy a home, this is actually awesome. <laughs> it's really awesome. I mean, everybody's been like, I'm waiting for a buyer's market. Well, congratulations. You're about We're to almost yeah. there. But unfortunately, it comes with higher interest rates. Unfortunately, it comes around a peak of price. But what it also comes with is very negotiable sellers. Um, so basically what you're going to see is people, real estate agents, putting their Remember the escalation clause that mm-hmm. we pulled off the shelf from 2005? We're putting that back on the shelf to collect dust. We're pulling off all of the tools that we used to use back in the day over a decade ago. Hello, enter the 2-1 buy-down. I know, it was like a 2-1 um, buy-down, adjustable um, rate mortgage. Right, yeah. yes. All of those things are in play now, and the sellers are willing to... If, you know, think about it, if you're a seller and you're coming to, you're not looking at taking a loss, you're getting a less than expected return on your investment. Your most sellers are not losing their down payment. They're getting a less than expected return on their initial payment. 
So if they have to give up some of their equity, many sellers would rather give it up to somebody who's going to live in the home than an institution. And Can so, you elaborate on the two one buy down? Because I think that's something that we understand, but mm -hmm. not necessarily everybody. So a two one buy down is a temporary reduction in interest. Um, so it comes at a pretty significant cost. It's a couple points and it cannot be paid for by the buyer. So the real estate agent or the seller has to pay for it. But it's like essentially if the rate is 6%, you could buy it down for the first year to 4%, the second year 5%. And then the remainder of the 28, you know, 28 years of a 30 year term would be paid at 6%. Now, what's awesome about that in particular, along with like maybe some shorter term financing, is that there's a lot of industry professionals that believe that because like the government is um, trying to slow down the economy. the economy again. And so if you do a two, one buy down, if you enter into a shorter term arm, there's a high likelihood. I'm not clairvoyant. I can't guarantee this, uh, that you'll be able to refinance later on at a lower rate. Right. We don't do pre predictions obviously, yeah. but I think it's a reasonable expectation given history since the 1970s, mm -hmm. when we've seen a spike in interest rates, it's often followed at some point by a sharp spike down, especially if you're towards the end of a recession. So that's a reasonable expectation to have that sometime between now and the next year or two or three from now, you're going to have the opportunity to refinance. And so that whole idea of, you know, marry the house, date the rate. Uh, rate oh, yeah. I've never know, heard that, but I'm going to use that's that. That's been from... going around on, online somewhere, but it's true where you, you get to buy the house and then you adjust your payment over time as you refinance. The thing with the 2-1 buy down that some lenders don't like is that the clients forget. Um, could you point your mic up more just a little bit? Sorry. Like this? Yep. The clients forget. Oh. So they need to be followed up with the reminder. Oh, I guess for yours to point more towards the mm -hmm. oh, Sorry. Okay. So, so, um, so you guys both feel, not know, mm -hmm. but right. feel like interest rates are going to go down mm -hmm. in the next year or two. You don't think it's. Yeah. So like in, in all fairness, I think that what is happening right now to interest rates is that there is nobody wanting to purchase mortgage-backed securities as an investment long-term because there is a high likelihood that they'll be bringing rates down. And that's right. a very, very strong indication for people that are watching the market that mm -hmm. says, hmm, like, it, like when you're deciding on making a, an educated guess, because this is like what we do when we're investing, right? We're mm -hmm. making the best hedged guesses. But like, if you know that investors don't want to buy, the only customer is the U.S. government at this mm -hmm. moment. Rates are going to be super volatile like we've seen. So, yeah. and um, But do you think that there are people that are wanting to buy mortgage-backed securities or are waiting because they think the interest rates are going to be lower? Yeah, like once the market is more stable, you have more investors that want to enter into the market. The problem is that a return on a, on a mortgage is like three years of payments. Mm -hmm. Like it sucks right now for most mortgage companies, right? A lot of mortgage companies like are in a really unique position. It's very expensive right now to get the lowest rate possible. If they sell the lowest rate possible at that peak of the market, there's like so many products and they give you so much yield for those products. And right now they're being very stingy with those things because all of the agencies also know that there is a high likelihood of them bringing interest rates down. And so mortgages right now are probably the most expensive I've seen in my career. Yeah. Not the highest interest rates I've seen in my career, but the right. most expensive. Um, Can you elaborate the difference between expensive and rate? Yeah. So like I've, I've worked in the industry since 2002. So interest rates at that time were anywhere between like seven and 9%. And so I got to see them come down from there to like five and a quarter was like historically low rates. Um, and then I've seen it trail all the way down and a mortgage back then, I mean, wasn't close to $300,000. Like it just wasn't. Uh, mm -hmm. And you didn't have to pay as expensive of a cost. Like, I mean, it's not unheard of to see uh, loan estimates with one to two and a half points, like discount points right now to get a competitive rate. Got it. And so that's what I meant by like, like the loan amounts are greater. The cost to get that interest rate is higher. And in general, interest rates at 6% are not historically low anymore. Got it. So um, you made the comment that it seems like the industry is freaking out more yes. than buyers and sellers. Yes. So um, I think I mean, you're talking to buyers every day. What are you know your buyers telling you when they're when they're house shopping? 
Uh, we've seen a very large increase in cancellations because people are very uncomfortable with the monthly payments. It's a sticker shock. We deal with lots of buyers. Um, and, and But I will definitely say that, you know, like there's a lot of misinformation from real estate agents. I, I think a lot of misinformation is probably an understatement, but continue. <laughs> I know. And it's hard because like consumers get informed by what they see online, like mm -hmm. via the news. Like there was this headline that was so annoying. It circulated like 20 times. Interest rates plummet to 5.3%, lowest drop in like 20 years or whatever it said. And I'm like, you guys, yeah, because two weeks ago in two days, interest rates were like 6.625%. And so, yes, that is a steep decline. But guess what? That 5.3% interest rate that the news reported is already one week old based on the Freddie Mac interest rate survey, and it's no longer plummeted. And you just can't base your facts on that. And like most real estate agents don't know what's going on. Like I talk to someone today and they're like, Lizzie, we're headed for a crash. Values are going down. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like, values are not going down. Well, how can you tell me? I, I, this house is selling for under appraised value. And just so you know, guys, seasonally, there are times of the year when homes will not uh, like appraise. And there's homes times like, so for instance, I know March and May are the most difficult times for a home to appraise because the preceding six months are the slowest times in real estate. Right. It's like you get Christmas, January, February, and that's what they base home values on. But then you have people who are willing to pay higher prices then because there's more competition and that's market price. Right. So market price is what somebody's willing to pay today. Now, a home might be worth three hundred and ninety thousand, which is in this case is what happened. Uh, but that home sold for three sixty. It was listed for three seventy. Obviously, that real estate agent didn't list the house for three ninety. Again, like I said, there's that huge variance between opinions of value. It's like the appraiser and the real estate agent looked at the same information and they didn't sell it for $390, right? Mm -hmm. Now that buyer didn't lose $30,000 in equity. Do you know what I mean? Neither yeah. did that seller. They didn't even know they had that equity. Well, I think what the sellers are experiencing and what the realtors are experiencing is that we have seen a shift. So again, since last year, we have seen the traditional home buyers pull out or be pushed out essentially out, by yeah. these investors, by a lot of institutions. Um, you've got the institutional flip investor as well, the Open Doors Offer Pads, and of course Zillow before they pulled out as well. So you had these corporations that were willing to pay significantly more than the than the consumer. So they started driving the bus, okay, mm -hmm. in a sense of this price appreciation. That's where the risk came in. So the market... Um, as of today, you know, flash forward to the last uh, technically four months, but really becoming extremely noticeable in the last four weeks because institutions, as the interest rates pushed out more and more traditional home buyers, the institutions and the cash investors were the ones in control. And when they realized it, they pulled out waiting for prices to come down. And some of these institutions even pulled out of their escrows, just relinquished their earnest money and said, we're going to sit on the sidelines for a while and see how this all plays out. So the 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 funds that were buying these properties, you're saying even as yeah. four months ago, they were starting to see, oh, crap, we're the ones yeah. buying all the houses. We, we the need to push, pull back. They were the ones. Well, we've been telling them this for a year that they are the ones pushing the prices up. Mm -hmm. I mean, who would have thought that in greater Phoenix, in the latter half, in the slowest period of time, the, the last half of the year is typically a decline in demand from the peak, which usually hits us right around March, April, May, and what's under contract all the way to December, it's a gradual decline. Well, right after June, all of a sudden, Zillow and Open Door decided to have a clash of the titans in Greater Phoenix, pushing prices up, saying we're going to take over the market, and then they, then they got to win. Whoever won got to take the trophy of most losses in mm -hmm. 2021, yeah. which I believe Open Door won that for the year of 2021, and Zillow won for the, their entire career of flipping from 2018. <laughs> but anyhow, aside from that, the thing is that that, that created a, a perception that demand was just going crazy. But what happened is those companies had to sell to, guess who? Somebody on the other side, because they're not holding properties. Right. And when the, the general population is pushed out, guess who they were selling to? Institutions. 
And so when institutions pulled out, they are now having to turn their attention, them and the builders are now having to turn back to the same people that they pushed out and kicked to the curb for the last year or so, yeah. saying, hey, we'd really like you to come back now. And what if we pay down your interest rate? What if we pay your closing costs? I mean, this is actually the time where you got that 3% down FHA buyer that needs a little bit of help. Mm -hmm. You can walk them down a runway right now and auction them off because they are... They're golden. So I actually <laughs> wanted some clarification on that statement. So because like I am not seeing that it is a buyer's market at all. Like I'm mm -hmm. still seeing that my clients are paying asking price. I don't see a lot of closing costs at all. Um, mm -hmm. I yet. still see bidding wars. And, and I mm -hmm. know that it's going to come. Right. So but there is mm -hmm. this other thing with like um and, and I've heard this for a long time. And so I just I'm really, really interested to know is right now rental prices mm -hmm. are like the highest they've ever been because people have fled, you know, mm -hmm. traditional purchasing. They've now gone to the rental market and rental prices are surging. So right. there is a still large demand of families that need houses. Right. And it was my understanding that for the last like 15, 20 years that we had underbuilt for population size. Yes. And so I've always tried to tell people that like, yes, it's way more buyer friendly right now, like way more buyer friendly. Mm -hmm. But it, like, I don't think we're even close to 2018 conditions where it was flipping, you know, where it was like, I mean, yeah. like you listed house for 390, you maybe mm -hmm. bought it for 350 and they paid your closing. Like, I don't see that mm -hmm. in my experience or my information and I still think that we are in this position where it's like a math problem at some point yes. where like people need the houses but there isn't enough of them. Well here's the thing. We have um you can have your population continue to grow and have your demand drop. But when I need we to when we look at yeah so when we look at the housing market, first and foremost we look to see do you have enough homes for the population that's here? And I believe that our homeless population tells us no. Okay, even during the 2008 crash, we had zero problems with homelessness. We have a big homeless problem right now. So there's part of that question. We also have um, an allocation problem, as my friend Tom Ruff would say, in that we have had a lot of our supply pulled out by short-term rentals, and they're only available for tourists. Now, that's a whole other discussion about what's going on with Airbnbs and VRBOs. We're not going to get into it today. But the thing is this. Um, when things become unaffordable, the way you see vacancies arise, even when you have a population growth, is a, a term called household formation, that, that um, measure of household formation. When you see household formation shrinking, that means people are moving in together. The landlords might be getting the peak of their rent, but they are now having uh, their own, what's the word I'm looking for, concessions, if you will. They are accepting multiple roommates. They are accepting pets if they are getting their rent. Now, the minute a lot of these other units come available, the build to rent whole thing, when they start coming in and they're already starting to become open and competing with additional, with the landlords on that scale, then um, we'll see how that goes because we're kind of in the throes of this shift right now and everyone's kind of, you know, wondering when, how long is this going to take to recover? How long is this going to last? And meanwhile, we still have the tornado going through the town, people. We have to wait. We have, yeah, to, have wait to wait for, for it. it to... To, you know, the tornado being interest rates right now. We have to wait for this period to be over before you can actually look at the damage. And so what the interest rates have done is they pulled the emergency brake on the housing market. And it's on purpose yes. because the federal government is trying to bring down the inflation rate. Now, when you look at what is, what's the calculation for inflation? Rentals, Rent, the rental equivalent of your home is a 40% weight on the inflation rate. So if you bring down the cost of housing, it's a math problem. Once that inflation rate comes down and the rentals get into, you know, whatever you call, wherever they're looking for, I don't know. It's we're kind of at the whim of these guys yeah. right now. But the thing is, is that that um, that is their main goal. And so they're attacking the big piece of the pie. Was it necessary, though, to, like, 
pull the brakes that hard? Like, well, could they not have eased no, into it? it they me how to do it, and I would have told them my suggestions. But you know, the, the thing is that like the cost of goods and services are kind of out of control. Like we have the highest inflation that we've ever mm -hmm. seen, and the thing about it is that like this is how I also know we're not headed into a crash. Mm -hmm. Is that real estate? I think yes. it makes up like more than twenty five percent of the overall U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. like in terms of the number of verticals that it impacts. And so because it is a large driver of what's happening, mm -hmm. it is the fastest measure and the fastest way to correct mm -hmm. right, uh, our economy. But it also is like one of those things, it's like a, a train. Like mm -hmm. once they've corrected it, you have to like wait for the whole thing to go around. But I believe because I know population mm -hmm. issues and the undersupply of just general homes, that right. once they lower interest rates, we're going to be right back to... Yeah. So to that point, to give a visual of what the interest rates do, they pinch the hose, if you will, yes. of demand. And so that pinching creates, you know, what you could call it shadow demand. Because, you know, I'm just looking at my own, which I hate to use the word shadow, but it is a trigger word. <laughs> <I know. laughs> For those who don't know, closures. there was this whole thing in 2013 to 2015 about this. To 2020 and Shadow beyond. inventory that never existed. Yes. If we're, yeah. So anyway. <laughs> Aside from that, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about a little bit of your feeling about why we're not in a crash and my feeling why we're not in a crash. And let's define crash for one. Um, what was my train of thought? Anyhow, the thing is that uh, I lost my train. So I hate. Well, I guess we're, the well, other thing the, we're talking about, right, is like they could have, I mean, having Jerome Powell, the, the Fed chairman, come on and say the housing yeah. market needs a reset is right. a pretty bold statement versus like, hey, you know, housing's mm -hmm. a little out of control. Maybe we need to slow it down. Maybe we can need, need to buy fewer mortgage-backed securities versus like, hey, we need well, to... Okay, so... I, that was actually not the issue. Truthfully, mm -hmm. they just didn't understand how housing works. And yes. if I had well, been in charge, the central bank they, don't, charge they said that they understand. literally don't understand how inflation works the other day. That Which is also terrifying. But <laughs> the thing is that a, a good housing market, it was too weighted in favor of people with cash, like investors. And uh, like it should have so, been like, yeah. we give you this amount of tax break to sell your home to a first-time home buyer. Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. we, like, those are the types of things that should have happened to keep mm -hmm. occupants in the homes to make right. it a more stable so the market. Of homeowners to sell it to home uh, occupants yes, yes. primary so, versus selling it to anybody. That's right. So if they really wanted to slow down the market, if I could give two scenarios of the 2005 bubble, which was the precursor to the 2008 crash versus the last year and a half or so of our new price appreciation versus, you know, where we're going now is that the Wall Street money, wherever you see a lot of Wall Street money, you are going to see excessive risk. And back in 2005, Wall Street was investing in mortgages. And that's where all of that credit, all of that credit that was available created um, more pressure on loan officers to lend and all kinds of crazy programs came out. I mean, we're not going to go down that road, but it was a lot of high foreclosure risk loans. Okay. So Dodd-Frank came along. And basically put the kibosh on a lot of that type of activity. I think they might have. Did they take prepayment penalties out as well? No, it's just um, a non-QM. It's yeah. okay. So the thing is that since Wall Street kind of got out of mortgages a little bit more on that end, um, we stabilized. And then they started putting their money directly into the houses themselves, mm -hmm. becoming landlords. Then Open Door came into our lives in 2015. OfferPad came into our lives in 2016. They went public in 2020. Okay. The minute all that Wall Street money started coming in, guess what? That, mar that model got super risky. And Open Door and Zillow and all those guys started pouring money into it and pushing those prices up beyond the affordability of the local person. So if you wanted to stabilize the market, if that's what they should, what they should not do is take out the regular person spending their own money, being more conservative in their purchases. So they had a goal and they did the exact opposite to accomplish yeah, that so goal. So what they did is they took out the one conservative buyer and left the crazy person at the party pouring drinks for everybody. Yeah. But you they know like, what I mean? they have, it, what's so annoying about policy though, is that, you know, we had this imaginary first time homebuyer grant programs that were proposed in Congress now, like two years ago that made no sense that would have At that like time, make zero them, sense. Yeah. And it would make, it wouldn't have improved anybody's 
like competitiveness against somebody who's paying a hundred thousand dollars over. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, and so it's really annoying, right? Because Mm -hmm. I believe that this rapid acceleration, like two and a half points on is, is so aggressive, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that it'll take a second because it like, there's, What's really difficult about working in real estate is you have a six month lag on expectations. So for like the next mm-hmm. six months, sellers will still think it's like, well, I want 60 offers on my property. Do right. you know what I mean? Or like yeah. people still think interest rates are at 4% or 3%. Mm-hmm. And so you just yeah. have to wait it out. Mm-hmm. And then there's so many people in the industry right now who think that they're just going to make so much dollars because the last two years they did. And it's like, yeah. we have to wait really? out for the lack yes the new the people who shouldn't be in the professionals to get out and we have to wait like six months for expectations to change we had that great thing right with covid Mm -hmm. where everyone got paid to stay home and right so they actually i don't know how many licensed realtors we had that year Um, but we were paying people to stay home i want to talk about it (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry but you know well, yes. those are the realtors Dear, that are going to be struggling. Yes. Right yes. now. But yeah, it's, that's a whole it's another everybody thing. Everybody who just got in thinking that this was an easy way to make money. Like well, real estate it is pretty well, easy to make money in real estate, well, isn't it? Well, well, even if you're <laughs> he, you know people. what he says this with zero expression, so people <laughs> yeah. might actually believe you. No. Yeah. Um, being in real estate is like being on professional crack. Like you're yeah. just highs and well, lows. Well, let's talk about real quick, though. <laughs> to your point, I love that. To your like, point about those of us who lived through the 2008 crash. A lot of veterans of that time are going through a period of PTSD right now oh, sure. because sure. of the the rapid response. So I, I, I compare it to a trust fall. Okay. As an analyst, <laughs> as an analyst, we have looked, we have analyzed that 2005 through 2008 to the nth degree. We know exactly what caused that. We know that we have a lot of different things happening in this market that makes it unique all by itself. But what we do have that we didn't have in 2005, six and seven is a strong base of stable homeowners with stable loans and stable equity. And that is what's going to catch us. And, but in the meantime, we have to fall through all of the risky stuff. 18% of everything in the MLS right now was purchased January or after. percent. 18 percent of everything that was in the in the MLS as of last week, that's my last week number, was purchased this year. So you wow. have to get through all of these desperate sellers. So what we look for when we say, okay, well, we desperate think sellers prices, as in like we're talking like open door or we're talking like open other door, flippers, builders, flip people who have been engaging in the most riskiest form of real estate, which are wholesalers, which are flip investors. <laughs> which are um, builders who might have been overbuilding a little bit or got caught because they were selling to investors, some of them. Mm -hmm. Um, All of those people are the most motivated. So what happened back in the crash, because of all of those risky loans, people can get out of them. And we created a lot of desperate sellers. The only seller we have today that's an owner-occupied traditional seller is somebody that's just disappointed they're not getting an extra $10,000 of equity. They're not having to dip into, like, I paid more for the home that I can get, you know? So it's totally different scenario. I I don't experience that many unhappy sellers, though, either. I I really, truly don't believe that people are aware of, like, that person that could have sold their house for $390. It's like, no, but when they list a house on the market, it's like, I can't believe it's been like two days and my house yes. hasn't sold yet. Well, they're looking at my neighbor. No, I know that was literally, it was like, this, this home is sat on the market for five days. What is wrong with this house? Like, well, I've only had one showing. The it's conversation like, is more like my neighbor four months ago listed and sold for this amount of money. They had a line around the corner. They had mm-hmm. 57 offers, half of them cash. And they sold for overless price. Now, here I am four months later. Why am I not having that same experience? And you're like, let's have a moment of silence for that market. (laughs) Okay, let's just have, well, let's just appreciate that we had it and go through all of our five stages of grief because it's not coming back. Okay. But like, what are they really missing out on? Like somebody who bought a year ago and sells their house today, like I think the national average Mm -hmm. was $65,000 increase in equity. Right. I mean, I think what they're missing out on is not having the multiple offers, not having people waive their appraisals and so on. So let me ask you this, Lizzie, because you're, 
again, like you're on the front lines on the mortgage side, right? Like mm -hmm. before they even make an offer, they got to talk to you. Yeah. Right. So right now, are they telling you like, hey, you know what? I need to take a pause. Yes. We've had a ton of people take a pause. Mortgage applications in general are yes. down. Like, it, I mean, I, I think it was like 34%. It's down. It's right. like, it's, it would be ridiculous ridiculous guys to not acknowledge that but i will also say that we had record like record number of applications like i used to call it mortgage armageddon because <laughs> like it was just like flying at me every five seconds so it's like it, it's all relative to the time period that you're in mm -hmm. like it's all mm -hmm. like yeah like you know i remember the headlines like was it right when forbearances were off it was like like double digit increase in foreclosures. It's like, yeah, from zero to 10 oh, is a double digit increase, you know, yeah. but it's like, <laughs> it's relative for how you see it. Yeah. And a 2% increase drops 25% in someone's purchasing power. Yes. People are going to wait. They're going to try to rent, but what ends up happening is literally like it's uh rents. Rentals are always a lagging indicator of what just happened in housing. So mm -hmm. like I have seen lots of people like bidding wars on a rental. Like, I know you said that renter landlords are being more flexible. Not so many of those anymore. I still am seeing people be very aggressive on trying to get a rental property right well, now. Well, just uh, in the MLS, the rental stats um, from June of last year when affordability was still good, frankly, the landlords were about 71% of all the leases that went through the MLS, successfully closed leases, were at least priced. Awesome. Um, actually, about 79% were at or over lease price. Um, but today, that number is not nearly as high. Today, for the month of June, which is typically a high month for rentals, um, you're only looking at about 54% are at, are at list for oh, rentals. Um, and another 4% might be going over lease price. Is it price. also, though, because they're really being aggressive in their pricing as well, or no? Yeah, because we're looking at the last, well, actually, a lot of them are, I go, I have been using the original lease price. So there mm. are lease price reductions happening um, and there are negotiations. And right now the gap between the asking rent and the successfully closed rent is about $95 a month. And yeah. that happened, that gap started right after June of last year. So this isn't anything new. Rentals in the MLS, which let's be honest, that's the last resort. For landlords, nobody wants to put their listing in the MLS, okay? Because <laughs> A, it takes forever. B, they have to fill out all kinds of, you know, they have to follow up and tell us what they actually got in rent. That's the only place we can actually tell you they're not getting what they're asking yeah. for. So, but going back to, to you, Lizzie, like, they're saying they're taking a pause. I mean, they have to be taking a pause for a year then. They do, and they take, or six months, or they go to live with family, or I've had a lot of clients um, relocate out of state because now a lot of employers are allowing them to work from home. Mm -hmm. Um I I'm I'm interested in looking at that rental statistic, not that I don't totally believe you. Uh mm -hmm. but there's been a lot of national headlines that are talking about like the surge in rental prices and like just right. it, like if these people exit the home buying market, they they mm -hmm. have to They're the most qualified renters in history. Yes. When you hit a peak of rent price, okay, we have seen a 13% gain in and now mind you, the MLS does not typically have a lot of the low-end rentals, okay? If you're going in the MLS, you are usually on the higher end, single family, a lot of single family in there. Um, so it's not the entire pie. And it doesn't no, include but apartments. Yeah. But it, it does give us a window into what's happening. Sure. We had a 12% increase in the MLS active listings for rentals in three days because of one investor I don't know who their property manager was, but they must have had carpal tunnel entering about 300 to 400 new rental listings in a three-day period into the MLS. And so as a result, we are up almost 50% from January to just as of a couple days ago in that inventory. And I took the highest count of listings since we've been counting actives in the MLS for rentals going back to 2018. So we are now surpassing the regular normal rental inventory that we were used to in 2018 and 19 pre-pandemic. So that tells so, us that all those institutions that were buying rentals like crazy for a lot of money now are putting them on vacant at their higher prices, but they may not be getting that higher price because people cannot, the market can't 
Barrett. That's so interesting. Yeah. I have a theory. I'd love to get both of your takes on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So right now we got you know people taking a pause. All right. They're looking mm-hmm. at this like holy mm-hmm. crap. You know, please give me more listings. Okay, you've given me too many listings. I'm gonna uh, <laughs> take a pause. Uh, but I think that once we clear, you know, these people that have kind of given up, we got new people getting married, having kids, mm-hmm. moving here to yes. Arizona, which is uh, I'll have to get a reminder from you how many people are moving here every single day. But we have fresh set of eyes who don't yeah. have the comparisons like, man, like this sucks. Like last year or last month, mm-hmm. I qualified for 400. I qualified for 360, right? Like right. we don't have those people that are really disappointed. They come in with mm-hmm. a fresh set of eyes. Right. Are they not going to just get our demand right back up? Um, so that I don't know. Well, here's the thing. By the time we get the migration to information and it's already a year old. So yeah. whatever I tell you is from last year and it's kind of, you know, I won't know until July, <laughs> about last July. So so you have to kind of take that population migration data with a grain of salt mm-hmm. and realize that it's old data, but it's still good data. Some of the migration reports from the moving companies, one of the things I noticed about last January when I think it was, um, it's, I'm trying to remember the moving company. I want to say it's something like North American or not Atlas. Anyway, one of them asked a lot of demographic information. What I've learned from tracking that report every year is that we are losing more of our retirees. So we are seeing fewer retirees moving to Phoenix because of the cost of living, but we are gaining a lot of younger people being relocated because of work. And that statistic actually changes our incomes significantly because a fixed income retiree is going to register as a low income individual, even if they have a high wealth, but the working family will increase that, that median family income. So case in point, before, before this year, the census, which by the way, was a dumpster fire, the 2020 census, I won't go into it. But anyway, um, our estimated family income was 79,000, but the new updated one was 88,800. Yeah, which is and so a lot that's more a pretty line. huge jump. And and that tells me as well that you may have people that are working here remotely for companies outside of the state, even though we have people relocating out on the other side. Yeah. But you have people that might be working for a San Francisco company living here, and that income was delayed in getting to us because yeah. of the rapid relocation issues and 2020 issues for those companies having to register with the states that their employees were going to in order to get that income for taxes, right? So there's a lot of that that I think is still happening. I think what's really difficult to like predict with migration or just like, you know how like people always estimate, oh, well, all of these new corporations are coming here. Mm-hmm. It, it's just that it's it changes all the time. Like for me, I have felt that the the census data, it never is on track. Like it drives me insane when you're like, it was it was 79,000, but before it was 79,000, it was 64. That I was like, yeah, this is not right. I'm like, I qualify people all the time and I deal with first time homebuyers. I can tell you that they make more money than this. And mm-hmm. what I think is interesting is that they've said that in like incomes have increased almost 6% from last year. Mm-hmm. Like that's a pretty significant increase in people's affordability. And like one thing that, mm-hmm. you know, cause I, was like super nerdy. Like back in like 2005, affordability was like in the 40%. Like it was just not affordable then based on the price of the home and someone's actual income. When was this? Back in the housing boom. Oh, like yeah. affordability got down to was like really terrible. Mm-hmm. And so, but it, no, when you're just looking and what I'm talking about is like the mortgage payment to someone's income, like right. the housing ratio Got it. right now, we're like 29%, which is very in line with people can afford homes. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. like when we're talking about, I still think that Arizona is relatively affordable. We're not like the cheapest, mm-hmm. uh, but I still think it's a very attractive place for people to move to. I think just immigration migration that they were talking about, because I think our Gen Z population is actually smaller in the United States than our millennials. But like with yes, migration is, is expected to be 10% larger. And so I just think that there's so much opportunity for people to purchase here in this marketplace, still being affordable with great salaries. Yeah. So as long as going back to my, you know, uh, hypothesis is that 
yeah, if you've been trying to buy for the last three to six months, you're basically saying, screw this. But yeah. if today you decide to go look for houses, like, okay, like you have nothing to compare it to. You, know, yeah. you can't see like, well, this house I'm looking at right now is way worse than what I was looking at two months ago. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and the interesting thing, too, is that um, just to, four months ago when we were in an aggressive seller market, that is the perfect time for what we call your dump your junk. I yes. mean, you get really my non-warrantable condo. Yeah. yeah, the fixer-upper homes. Um, sellers don't have to fix their roof. They don't even have to clean up the dog poop in the backyard, right? They don't have to do anything to sell their home or house. Yeah, right. <laughs> Depending on what, how low you are on that um, on that scale. But now, now as we are coming out of that, and we have actually come out of that market completely. And we are entering into a balanced, possibly a buyer's market in a matter of weeks at this point. This is now the perfect market for your not-so-perfect buyer. So on the other side of the scale, you have a buyer that's been, you know, kicked in the gut for two years or so now. Now they are able to come to the, if they can still shoulder the rate, right, they can get sellers to pay for a lot of things. And the quality of home that is available because of the supply increase um, is much higher and the the willingness of the sellers to do repairs is much higher now so yeah. so i think i was reading uh the Crawford report um mm -hmm. and what we see is like we've been going 100 100 and a half 101 percent yeah. of a uh, sell price to list price and yeah. now you're uh, uh Crawford is predicting potentially nine we're going back to 98 percent 97 percent Plus, we're already at 99. 3% concessions I know. plus yes. uh, home warranties. So, this is what happens in the last part. So, here's what happens during a shift there's three things before sale prices end. The first stage is price reduction. So, we saw 14 weeks ago, we started to see price weekly price reductions moving up, and they're up over 500% in a 14 week period. So, that was the first stage. The second stage is days on market. Like, oh my gosh, it's a whole two weeks now. Whoa. Um, but it's gone up over the last seven to nine weeks now. That has been inching up an extra day, extra day, extra day, extra day. The third thing, when you get towards the peak of price, the third thing is the cost to the seller. You might get your price, but you are paying something underneath that price. And when seller concessions no longer work to get your home sold, then your sale prices start to come down. That's why it takes so long, three to six months, to see the result of today's market in the actual numbers. One and I'm that, oh. so sorry, just because, like, I think it's just so important because I think this is where everyone gets it. Mm -hmm. Like, again, like, people list their house. Like, your house might be worth, let's say, $300,000, right? Mm -hmm. Most people will list that house because it, they bought it, like, six months ago, $300,000. They'll list it at three twenty, dollars or they'll list it at three ten, dollars Which no one would have done in 2018, by the way. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> but my point is that they, like, they list it for higher than what most people think that it's worth. Mm -hmm. And so does that actually impact the value of your house? your sales price. And, and I think that that's like what people get stressed out about is that if I buy this house today, is it going to be worth less in a year from now? We don't do those predictions. <laughs> because you, yeah, because you're talking about just market because price. Because if you are only going to hold your home for a year, this is not the market to buy. Should never buy. This is not the market for that. So you were talking about, you know, the price reductions. And this is the thing that mm -hmm. really aggravates me, you know, talking to other people in our industry mm -hmm. they're freaking out it's like look at all these price reductions like price reductions are irrelevant right yeah. everyone's been testing the market like if you asked me five years ago hey steve i want to sell my three hundred thousand house for 330 mm -hmm. it's like i'm not your i'm not your agent but yeah. if you know six months ago steve i want you to list my house for 300 for 360 let's roll the dice let's see where this goes i have no idea absolutely what's going to happen yeah right absolutely. and now so this everyone's is... freaking out about price reductions because mm -hmm. everyone rolling the dice. Well, let me tell you, like, this is the market that pros are made in. And, um, and I've said it before, I yes. say it again. When you have an a seller market like what we've just been through, it does not take a lot to be successful. Even a turkey can fly in a hurricane. We all know this. We were all turkeys, people. We were all turkeys. We didn't know who was a turkey and who was a real bird. But I'm telling you that this marketplace going into a, ba a, a balanced market, certain models business models will not work and we've known this historically forever that we've been in a seller market for so long that these uh, flip models 
are very, very risky when you go into balance. So you have to really know your trade. You have to be very good at knowing what your timelines are, what your holding costs are, and you have to get below that market value because if you make a bad decision, you cannot ride appreciation every month and make up for it. You have to be smart now. And so that means that business models like the corporate iBuyer may not do so well because they require volume because they're working off of algorithms and they require the volume to offset their risk. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't have the volume and you're accumulating inventory and you're having to do price reductions now, that's, um, that's very telling. And, and as they move through that inventory, we have to wait for all of that inventory, all those desperate sellers, if you will, we have to move through our desperate sellers and get to the other side. And that's where our base of stability is. So I know that we do have to respect Lizzie's time. She has to be somewhere. Oh, sorry. Uh, so no, it's okay. uh, I got a few que uh, questions here from online. So Hiru wants to know, how is rent relief ending going to impact the market? I don't think we really have that in Arizona. Right? I think that's more of a California thing. Um, I don't know about that. I'm sorry. I, I'm unaware. Are you talking about um, the I think landlords all people that, who are getting paid by the government to keep their tenants in there? So yeah, I think that or like uh, they weren't be, they weren't allowed to be evicted and now they're finally allowed to be evicted. I thought that was um, over a year ago. No, I think that just ended in California. There are definitely evictions that have been happening. Um, yeah. So then another question. As, um, um, I don't think we know. So yeah. during 2020 yeah. to 21, weren't the majority of the buyers, wealthy buyers, buying second and third homes that further exacerbated inventory due to unavailable building workforce. I think that a lot of people purchased second homes and they saw that an accelerated amount of people were purchasing and they made it way more expensive early on for those mm -hmm. types of buyers. Um, I mean, the majority of people that we help are first time home buyers. And so I don't know a hundred percent the answer mm -hmm. to that question. I know, I know industry-wide, they increased the cost of second homes. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that a large percentage of the inventory that was lost was because people retained their primary residence mm -hmm. instead of uh, selling it when they were vacating it. Okay. Um, yeah, well, I can, I can comment a little bit yeah. on that. So the thing with second homes, in Arizona, um, when you purchase, you have to file an affidavit of value, okay? And tell the government, are you going to be a second home, a landlord, or owner-occupant? We don't have a category for short-term rental, and we don't have a category for flip, okay? <laughs> so there's a little bit of gray when it comes to second homes. For example, open door is a second home that they throw themselves in the second home. Oftentimes, the short-term rentals, if they're gonna plan to live there six months a day, they throw themselves in the owner-occupant. But some of them put themselves in second homes, sometimes they put it in a rental. So it's really kind of a mixed bag. But let me tell you what happened to what happens with second homes and let's just merge it in with, with short-term rentals, if we will, that there is a risk of vacancies. When we look for what could cause properties to decline, we look first and foremost at what will cause a vacancy. Vacant homes, the longer they're vacant, the more the price comes down, whether they're vacant for rental or vacant for sale, doesn't matter. So second homes, especially outside of the greater Phoenix area in some of our, you know, Sholo, Lake Havasu, or even parts of Scottsdale where you have a lot of short-term rentals, those are risky because when we go into recession, the first thing to go out of people's budgets when gas goes up, food goes up, they're not going out. They're not taking vacations. So short-term rental industry is seeing a bit of a tightening up, and they have a lot of competition. Some people are going to hold on with white knuckles until the Super Bowl, maybe. <laughs> but um, the thing is that uh, you are seeing some vacancies in second homes. Also, what happens when people are feeling very rich, cryptocurrencies went through the roof last yeah, year. Yeah, right now. People are feeling very rich and they're getting lots of commissions or lots of returns on their investments. They start to, um, this happened in 2005 as well, they start buying second homes all over the place. When they start feeling less confident that they can maintain those homes, they start putting them up for sale. And we have seen second homes um, also go up. So another statistic for what's active in the MLS right now, 55% of everything that's active is vacant. Meaning it's vacant either because it's new home, it's vacant because it's a flip, or it's a vacant because it was a short-term rental, or it's vacant because it was a second home for somebody. Yeah, or they're selling so, their rental properties. Yeah. Not, yeah, and the thing with crypto, and the reason why, uh, you know, you, because you're working with first-time first home buyers, a lot of that market 
was fueled by cryptocurrencies going crazy in the latter part of 2020 out of the blue and then sustaining through 2021. And so now you've got this massive downturn. So fewer people are making returns on that investment. So uh, we might be getting more to a normal market. I would say fewer people are making returns. I think a lot of people are losing a lot of them. Yeah, I didn't want to. It's blood in the streets. They're giving it back all those returns. <laughs> I so, mean, yeah. it was never real anyway. Well, Strong depends disagree. on who you talk to. Agree to disagree. Yeah. Anyway, um, so Lizzie, right? I, I am a, a, a first-time home buyer, yep. right? I, right? I call you and I was like, Lizzie, I'm really worried about what's going on. Mm -hmm. What are you telling those buyers? So I tell people that you buy when your budget says it's ready, when you have a real housing need, right? So like... You know, there are times in people's lives when they should not be homeowners. When I bought my very first house, I was 23 years old. I needed my brother to help me afford the payment. I bought it on a two-year arm um, interest only because I anticipated getting a raise in two years. Okay. <laughs> I didn't have a whole lot of assets, and I should never have purchased that house. And in fact, it made my life so stressful and I wish somebody had said, you know what, you're better off renting. In fact, I was better off renting. I was paying a, like $1,000 less for my rent. Mm -hmm. And so in that circumstance, if you find yourself there, no. But if your budget is in line, if you have assets, if you understand that a real estate purchase is an investment like intended to give you a place to live, like it is security, uh, then now is as good a time as any to purchase real estate doubles every 20 years. And that's even true for the great recession. Like if you bought a mm -hmm. home in 2005, that property is almost doubled in value. And there is nothing like that, right. That you can find in any other kind of investment. Most people, even in a market like now where it's shifting and appreciation, they're projecting is going to be somewhere around 3% next year. Right. Even mm -hmm. at that, right you will still get a hundred percent return on your cash investment about one and a half to two years. It's like, again, mm -hmm. there's just nothing else like it. So that's what I'm telling first time home buyers is what I'm telling most people buy when your budget says it's ready, when you have a real need in housing and you're prepared financially. And you have a tool yes. to help people figure out when's the right time to buy. Um, so I have a budget guide right now, currently on my website, but we are rolling out an app called smart sense. Uh, it hopefully will be launching in January. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. And it's just a tool to help people uh, be able to budget and set long-term goals for finances. Yeah. And then you were saying uh, your thesis as to why the market's not going to crash. Um, we were kind of touching on it earlier. I don't think I got a chance yeah. to have you finish that statement. That's okay. So, um, well, first I wanted to define what is a crash. Because if you talk to me and some of the, the veterans of real estate, we go directly to 2008 and you're like, and I'm sitting here going, so you think our property values are going to drop 55% back to $200,000? I don't think we're going to have to go that far before affordability gets better and that some people get um, back into the game. So is it possible that we could go into a mild buyer's market for a brief six-month period? Potentially, yes. And in buyer's markets, you get less than the rate of inflation for your annual return. If we go to say, let's just hypothetically say we go to 0% December to December, by the end of this year, you have 0% annual appreciation. We're exactly at December pricing. That's a 15% drop in price. That is a correction. That would be correcting a frothy market that was most likely just really frothed up by investor activity and not based on population growth, not based on affordability, not based on a lot of our basic economic factors that would tell us that that's sustainable. We've known that this was not sustainable for a while, but correcting back to December pricing is not a crash, but it is a wonderful opportunity for some people to get in there that want to hold their home for a while. Like long-term investment is where it's at today. You're saying if December of this year is the same as December of last year, that'd be a 15% correction. No, fifteen percent correction. Um, and I'm not predicting that. Price, I'm just saying that value. that's probably a reasonable expectation mm -hmm. because most of what's been pushed. Um, let's just talk about pricing for like payments from December to June. The payment for a fifteen hundred to two thousand square foot home went up nine hundred dollars a month. 
We all know that that's not sustainable. We all know that that pricing is not being driven by population. That's being driven by investors. So the majority of people who are going to lose over the next six months are not going to be our normal population. It's going to be them. <laughs> and I'm sorry, it's hard to shed a chair over that. Okay. But for the people who did buy in that period of time, if they hold on to that home and interest rates go down and that hose does this, mm -hmm. guess what happens? Uh, that demand comes back. If the hose is released quickly, we could see a surge. If it's really slowly, we could see a nice trickle back of demand coming back. Um, and it depends on how many homes we have available at the time. It depends on all kinds of things. But what we do know is this. Interest rates do not stay high or low forever. And these markets do not last forever. Our seller market did not last forever. This market will not last forever. The longer you hold your home, pay down on your, you build your equity over time, even if your home does not appreciate a dime, you have acquired equity just through your payments. And, um, and that is something to be accounted for. A lot of people don't think, where am I going to be three or five years ahead? They're only looking at next year. And that's really not the place to be if you're buying homes right now. So my last question for both of you is, this is not talking to the homeowners or the people looking to buy, but really, you know, uh, the peers, right? The realtors, title companies, loan officers. Sales volume, as far as units yes. sold. Yes. How much, because we, you know, we were at 10,000 at some months, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, sales in a month. Where do you see sales volume going in the next for the rest of the year depends on how much we can educate our people frankly to get the mindset i mean it's struck i mean set. we're we're down significantly over 30 percent, and i think that's very standard for the industry at large mm -hmm. you know i've been through these types of markets and what i've been telling everybody that works with me is that this is the time when you have to do double the marketing you have to market for current, right? The current needs of people. And then you market mm -hmm. for the current needs six months from now. You know, I'm talking about recession news. I'm saying, hey, guys, unfortunately, it's still seller conditions at the moment. Like, I hate yeah. to say that, but it is 97% of list price seller conditions. It's like, give it like so, four weeks. <laughs> great. But in a month from now, we can talk about that then. But we mm -hmm. still have to, like, what am I going to say? So sorry, wait a month to buy your house. Do you know what no. I mean? You no, wouldn't. buy it now because the thing is that by the time the measures, to your point, yeah. by the time the measures come around, you're already late to the party. Yeah. Um, because that's the sales prices are a result. They're not. They're not the indicator themselves. So yeah, to your point that you know, as an industry, we don't. Let's be honest. We don't care about the price. We honestly don't. The only people who care about price are the seller and the buyer. We need transfers of property to be happening and to sustain our appraisers, our, our, you know, our inspectors, the title, the lending, all of those employees that all work with each other to help transfer, sellers transfer their property to a buyer. And we need to have that demand line stay up. I don't care if supply goes up, but we need the demand line to stay high. So what we need, to your point, it's going to be a slog, but for the next six months, our industry has a big job to educate all the buyers that it is a new game. You do not need to go over list price. You do not need to waive all of your rights under the contract yeah. now. You are in the driver's seat. I know you weren't four months ago, but now you are, and now we need to get you back in the game. So prospect, prospect, prospect. Yeah. So uh, 20 30%. Drop maybe. I've heard some people say maybe fifty percent or more. I think it's like thirty to fifty. Yeah, 30 like to 50. I yeah twenty. Mm -hmm. I thought was. I mean, we're seeing a thirty percent drop, but I mean, it's yeah. tough. Currently, I've seen a twenty five percent drop in title open. Current measures are twenty percent. Um, yeah. What's in this grow compared to this time last year is a twenty percent drop. Um, as a far lagging as where we are indicator, in though. terms right. of what would be normal for this season, we are looking at a thirteen percent below normal. For, yeah. for what we should expect for the month of July. So uh, we got to wrap up here. So if someone wants to get a hold of both of you, uh, I'll start with you. How would someone get a hold of you? You have to hunt me down like an animal. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really terrible. You actually do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, I don't have an assistant. So uh, you can email me and I might answer you a couple She's months later. She's at the Cromford Report, though. <laughs> so, like, if you look at the bottom of the really screen, it's like info at the com is how you would contact Tina. She definitely benefits from you guys subscribing to this if you're a licensed real estate agent. Yeah. Like, she's a wealth of knowledge, guys. Yeah, so Cromford Report, <laughs> subscribe. You. It's so valuable. I mean, 
I get to look smart because of the comfort report, right? I get to educate. I get to wake up every morning and look at the daily observations so that I look smarter. So, Which are written by my partner, by the way, Michael Orr, who's a mathematician from Oxford. He founded our system, and um, between the two of us, we maintain that. Yeah. And then if someone wants to get a hold of you. Yep. So I'm all over the place. So you can type Lizzie Hofer. Oh, it's with two F's, guys, um, into the Internet and you will find my Web page. You'll find my YouTube page. I'm Lizzie Irvine on Instagram just because I like to you know, mix it up. But I have tons of helpful tips on how to purchase, on how to budget, on great investment strategies. I try to be very active on there all the time and would love your uh, love for you guys to reach out and follow. Yeah. A wonderful YouTube channel and uh, the most knowledgeable loan officer so when i have an issue i'll call you she's awesome so if you guys get back again uh guys again please like subscribe share comment and we'll see you guys next week thank you guys for watching shout out to steve train jump on the steve train we real estate disruptors